I know, I can tell. <laughs> if it's counting, it's going, right? If it's counting, it's going, right? Okay. Okay. So I purposely waited like an extra like 10 minutes to start because um, I uh, always hate like, like I took all this time to make this message and I was going to catch the beginning. So I purposely, <laughs> I purposely waited until like more people were here to get going because I'm going to, um, oh, there's um, sheets for everyone if someone wants to pass them around. Um, so, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Keenan. Um, I've been at Bloom for a couple years, and whenever Luke is out of town, I volunteer myself to to give a message. It's both. Um, so, typically, I try to choose a topic that's really difficult because then it's more interesting for me and more interesting. I don't know. So. This week, I'm going to talk about God's wrath, so <laughs> that's, that's what I chose for my topic for the week, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with um, a prayer, and then we can kind of go into everything. So, God, I ask that you would give me peace of mind, and that you would give me clarity of speech, that this message would make sense, and would be communicated, and that it would fall on the right ears and that everyone would understand what I'm trying to say. Um, I ask that you would bless us as we go about today and that you would bring us closer to an understanding of you. In your name, amen. So, right now, as a community, uh, we are reading, um, or people have the opportunity to read a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And when I was in college, I went to a private Christian college and I took a course called C.S. Lewis and the Inklings and it was all about the life of C.S. Lewis and then some of the other people who were in his like writing group it was also like the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings and so there was like a lot of a lot of really great literature came out of this group of people that met in a pub every week so part of the coursework was reading I think I had to read like 10 or 12 books by C.S. Lewis and one of them uh, stuck with me for a long time and it's called Till We Have Faces on the sheet, it says oil we have faces, but it's definitely not oil we have faces. It's called till we have faces. Um, it is, yeah, oily faces by C.S. Lewis. Go, go home and try to look it up. Um, so the, it's kind of a little history of the book. What's kind of interesting about it is it is the first novel that C.S. Lewis started writing, but he, through his career, kind of like stopped and started like multiple times, and it was actually his last novel to be published. Uh, with the help of his wife. So it is all um, told from the perspective of one woman, and it's her story, and it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth, um, which none of that really matters. I just thought it was kind of interesting and wanted to give some like story to why I put this quote on the, on the sheet. So the novel essentially serves the purpose of a woman presenting her complaint to the gods. It kind of takes place in, like, almost like an ancient Greece kind of a setting. Um, so one of the quotes towards the beginning of the book has kind of stuck with me for a while, and the quote is this. Are the gods not just? Oh no, child, what would become of us if they were? So I am delving this week into God's judgment and wrath uh, because it's something we haven't talked about in a while, or if we've ever talked about it, I'm not sure, but... I don't think we've ever specifically been like, let's talk about all the passages where God says he's really angry. 
Um, I chose a couple of them, um, and hopefully, hopefully, what my research kind of into some of the words will help shed some light on it. The first one is kind of the first verse that comes to my mind when I think about God being angry. It's the verse in Deuteronomy where it's like, "Vengeance is mine." Um, it's kind of in the story. It's God saying to His people, "Like I don't like." I am the one who will attack. I am the one who will bring forth my vengeance. Like, it's not your job to repay evil. It's my job. Um, it's in Deuteron- Deuteronomy uh, 32, 35. The verse says, Revenge is mine. I will settle all scores. Soon they'll stumble because the day of disaster is almost here and their doom is coming quickly. At face value, it is kind of saying, Don't... Don't try and enact your own vengeance. I will enact vengeance. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I can't tell you how many times I have prayed this verse over other people's lives. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I think that um, there, yeah, I'm like, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. Like, I think there, I think we all kind of have a little bit of comfort in the misfortune of our enemies. I mean, I have definitely been one of the people who said, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Or did you see how fat he got? Like, like there's, like, we, we all kind of take, like, this weird sick pleasure in knowing, like, someone that we don't like or someone who has wronged us, like, something unfortunate happens to them. And, like, part of us is like, well, we should be good people and not be, like, happy about it. But, like, part of me is a little bit happy about it. Or at least I am, if I'm being honest. Um, we, as human beings, kind of have a history of feeling like we are the ones who are allowed to deal the judgment, to deal the wrath. Um, and I'm going to talk about kind of how we got to that place, but not before I do some more looking into these words that pop up in the Bible. Um, so there's a lot of hot words thrown around in the Bible, and I'm making a pun when I say hot words, so I want you to like pay close attention. So... <laughs> Ancient Hebrew is an interesting language, which I know almost nothing about if it were not for Google. Um, but the, the word vengeance, as it, acu- uh, as it occurs in Deuteronomy, is actually, the way it's written out is it's, it's spoken twice. So like the word vengeance like, appears twice. That's part of like an emphasis or like a, when things are duplicated in the Bible, it's like we are placing a strong feeling on it. So... The word vengeance in Hebrew is nakam, it's N-A-Q-A-M, and it shows up in that passage as nakam nakamath, so it's saying like, if it were to be translated literally, it would be avenge the vengeance. Um, There's not really an English equivalent to avenge the vengeance, um, but what some scholars are believing is that it can be translated as avenge the vengeance, or them being put next to each other could actually be translated to vindicate the vengeance. And so what vindicate means, it's like to clear someone. um, It's implying that God is trying to make things right. So it's a, there there is a sense of frustration, but there's also a sense of we are, there's also a drive to, fix what is causing the frustration. So that's like when, when that word wrath shows up in there, that's what it's talking about. It's vindicate the vengeance. It's a justification to the, to the outrage. Um, but I think when we hear vengeance, we think of God like flying off the handle or being really upset. So I was like, this is just one instance. I'm going to look into some more words that are in the Bible that talk about like wrath and judgment and kind of like what do they mean? 
Um, the word specifically for wrath in Hebrew is ah, which is like A-R-H. Um, there are not vowels in ancient Hebrew. Um, they use air sounds to kind of indicate a separateness. So, like, for example, the name Yahweh is a very airy name because there's a lot of, like, vowel-y sounds, even though they don't have vowels in their language. So when they use vowels, it's kind of to indicate a, like, an emotion that's set apart, a place that's set apart. Same thing, like, with heaven. It's a word that's got, like, a lot of vowels in it. So it's, um... When we're talking about ar or wrath, it's it's a very airy sound. It's a sound that's set apart. It's a sound that's passionate. Um, and it actually translates literally to, like, frustration. So, like, it literally sounds like frustration, too. You're like, ah! Like, that's what it translates to as frustration. The other word that is often translated into wrath is chema, and it's C-H-E-M-A-H. Um, and that's actually, like, their word for a snake bite. Um, but it, like, literally translates to hot displeasure. That's where the hot part, you can see what it is. Um, so... Snake bite, yeah. <laughs> so the idea is when someone gets bit by a snake, obviously they get a fever, they get very hot. Um, when they use the word hema, it's talking about someone who is like red-faced. Um, it's about a strong emotion. So it can be translated as wrath. It can be translated as embarrassment. It can be translated as betrayal. So what it is is a it's like a word that means... It's a very emotional and responsive word. It's a very, I'm feeling this, it's like a burning passion kind of a word. So what does God have to be betrayed, embarrassed, or angry about? And I think the answer to that is sin. So what is sin? Again, I don't know why I choose these topics, but so <laughs> the, I would say sin is the desire to be God and to be separate from God. Um, and I'm going to explain why that's the definition I put on sin. Um, it kind of has to do with the story of how sin came into the world. So in the book of Genesis, there is this narrative about the first people on earth, which are Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were created by God to basically be perfect human beings, and they are put in a perfect garden, and they spent their day walking with God, naming the animals. They were given, like, simple tasks to set the world straight. And they only had two rules, and it was, don't eat from this tree that will make you live forever, and don't eat from this tree that will give you the knowledge of good and evil. And it seems, like, simple enough, right? Like, just don't eat from either of those trees, and, like, humanity will be set. But, of course, that's not what goes down. Um, what I think is super interesting about the story, when you start to think about it, is the devil doesn't try to convince Eve that she needs to have eternal life. He tries to convince Eve, you don't need God. If you eat from this tree, you're going to know right from wrong yourself. You won't need God for anything. And... They do it. Eve eats the fruit and then gives it to Adam and he eats the fruit as well. And of course Adam's like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing. But of course he did too. Like it's, They both knew that they were eating from one of the two trees they weren't supposed to. And it was because the devil convinced them, you don't need God. If you eat this fruit, you can judge for yourself what's right and wrong. 
And they do it, and by doing so, they curse all of their children with the desire to be separate from God and the desire to be God for themselves, to have the ability to decide things without their creator. Um, the narrative kind of goes along. Uh, Adam and Eve's children eventually become enslaved and are brought into Egypt, and they are delivered by their creator, and then they spend years wandering the desert, and it's kind of like a... They don't really... It's like a really, like, on-again, off-again relationship with the creator that the, that the Israelites have, and at some point in time, they say, like, well, we have this ability to know right from wrong, but we want you to give us, like, a set of rules. Like, the commandments. We need, we need some sort of set of rules to live by our life so we know if we are measuring up to your standards, so we know if we are, if we are good with you. And God obliges that request. He gives, he gives the Israelites the law. He gives them a set of 613 rules with which by to structure daily life. It's going to be everything from how we're going to eat, how we're going to sleep, where we're going to work, what we're going to wear. You're not allowed to wear polyester. There's just all these like rules about how it's going to go down. And God's people think this is what's going to be what brings them closer to God. Like they're going to have at least something to strive to. Like a, if we follow these set of rules, we're going to be right with God. It will take care of sin. We'll be in the right place. But it does the opposite effect of bringing people closer to God. Uh, what it does is it creates an image of God that is dissatisfied with us, that is angry with us, that is eventually going to bring his judgment upon us because we are not meeting the standard. So then the children of Adam and Eve, which we fall into that category, they begin assigning negative human emotions to the character of God. They start talking about his wrath. They start talking about his anger. They start talking about his coming judgment. And God does eventually send his wrath. He does send all that emotion, the anger, the betrayal, the disappointment. He sends it to earth to, to put an end to the separation, to this being separate from God. But God doesn't send his wrath in a storm. He sends it in a manger. So God's justice and his final judgment for humanity comes in the form of a loving Jewish carpenter who is hell-bent on fighting any law that separates him from his people, and he fights institutions who seek to separate them from God. God's, God's vengeance against sin is Jesus. In the final like, courtroom scene in the book of Revelation, it talks about Jesus becoming like the appointed lawyer um, who in the courtroom of heaven, as people are being brought before like the judgment throne of God, Jesus acts as the lawyer and says, we paid that sacrifice. We ended that, sap we ended that separation. I put sin to death. There is no more judgment left for this person because my sacrifice covered that. It was made complete through me. It says in Romans 5, 8 through 9, but think about this. While we were wasting away our lives in sin... God revealed his powerful love to us in a tangible display. The anointed one died for us as a result. The blood of Jesus has made us right with God now. And certainly we will be rescued by him from God's wrath in the future. 
that's a super confusing passage because it talks about... So we, as Christians, believe that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are one, but there's also this weird dichotomy of Jesus represents love, and he comes to sacrifice his life so that we are saved from God's wrath. So in the same verse, Jesus is love, God is wrath. And it's really confusing because what... Like, what does that mean? I don't have the answer. (laughs) I don't. But my thought on it is, how can he be loving and vengeful unless they're the same thing? So what if God's love feels like wrath to someone who's rejected it? What if God's love is wrath? What if they're the same thing? What if God's love is terrible to someone who rejects that love. But the question is, why, why, would, why would someone reject God's love? Like, why would someone... If you knew about God's love, why would you reject it? I'm going to come back to that. I think part of what's super confusing about putting these emotions of love and wrath onto God is that we're trying to put human emotions on a non-human being. And so it's confusing. Because human love can actually be very selfish. It can be very self-motivated. Whereas God's love is selfless to the point of death. Likewise, humans in our wrath and in our judgment, we are very vindictive. We want to see people fail. Likewise, God in his wrath, the goal is to vindicate. It's to justify. It's to show grace. It says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says, My intentions are not always yours, and I do not do things as you do. My thoughts and my ways are above and beyond you, just as heaven is far from your reach here on earth. I think it is remarkably easy to accept God's grace for ourselves. I think if God's judgment upon us is Jesus, and his judgment upon us is love... I think that's a really easy message to accept. Like, okay, like I have no problem. Like, we're good with God, I'm good with God, I have no problem with that. But Jesus promised that his sacrifice is once for all. And that means God's judgment of love is for our enemies as well. And that is a much harder pill to swallow. Back to that courtroom scene in heaven, Jesus is saying to all the people who come forward, my sacrifice has paid their weight of sin. There is no judgment left for this person. I have paid the sacrifice for all. And we're standing right by Jesus, and we're like, um, okay, but do you remember that time that they did this to me? Like, I know your sacrifice pays for everyone, but, like, can we talk about, like, that time that they did this terrible thing to me? Not accepting God's judgment as fair for our enemies is I think exactly how we can go about rejecting his love. I think we use our power of judgment that we got through sin, through the knowledge of good and evil, I think we use it in little ways every day to say, you're not fair, God. I can judge their evil better than you can. I know I'm guilty of that. God's love can feel a lot like wrath to our desire to have our own personal justice system where we are correct every time. And I think there are some people who may, ne- who may never get over their belief that their judgment is better than God's judgment. It will make his love wrath to them, and it will be easier to be separate from him 
than to be okay to be in heaven with people that you disagree with or you don't like. If God's judgment is love through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, is it fair? Absolutely not. It's not fair. Isn't that wonderful? I'm going to read you that quote one more time. Are not the gods just? Oh no, child. What would become of us if they were? Jesus, I ask that you would show us in every way and in every day how your judgment is much better than ours and that you sent your son to be the judgment for us to set the standard that your love will not tolerate wickedness, that it will not, it will not withstand evil. I pray that we would continue to see daily that your love is far more challenging than your wrath. In your name, amen.